Today, if we hear the word deliverance, or within the context of the church or Christianity particularly, if we hear that word, typically and unfortunately, it's associated with the idea of what's sometimes called a deliverance ministry. The notion that a particular man or sometimes even a mantra that you might chant or recite or some ritual you might go through to somehow deliver you or some other person from disease or despair or misfortune, or in some cases just to deliver you from the devil. And this is what people consider deliverance ministries. The sad reality, however, is that very often within those ministries, the leaders themselves don't really offer deliverance at all. As a matter of fact, many of them demonstrate, if anything, that they're still in bondage, bondage to a love of money, bondage to a love of sin. And it seems that whatever their idea of deliverance might be, it's really missed the greatest truth of deliverance that can be found, the greatest need of deliverance, the greatest promise of deliverance, which isn't material, it isn't temporal, it isn't primarily focused on your health or your wealth or any of those things. The greatest promise, the greatest need of deliverance is eternal. What every man and what every woman needs more than anything else is deliverance from certain damning realities. Deliverance from a bondage to sin. Deliverance from the darkness of your own heart. Deliverance from guilt and condemnation. To be delivered from A bondage to a law that necessitates you working in order to gain God's favor. Deliverance from the power and the fruitlessness of sin in your life. In fact, to be a Christian is to be delivered. Not as some hope in the future, but as a settled matter of fact. In fact, the great word that we often use to describe ourselves as Christian is saved salvation. If you're even a beginning Greek student, you know that word sozo. It is basically a word that can mean in some circumstances to be rescued or to be uh, uh, delivered from physical trial or, or difficulty. But most of the time when you find it in the New Testament, it's not talking about physical dangers. More often than anything, it's talking about rescuing people from spiritual dangers. And so to be a Christian To be saved, to be rescued, to be delivered from so many of those damning realities is the the work of Christ in our life. We might say, to put it another way, the greatest deliverance ministry then, the primary deliverance ministry that the Scripture would ever speak about, is simply the preaching of the gospel. It is calling people to it. It is by that gospel that men and women are delivered from the guilt of their life. It's by that gospel that they are delivered from the shame of their sin. It's by that gospel that they're delivered from the aimlessness and the pointlessness of their life. It's by that gospel that they are delivered from the, from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of God's beloved Son. Now that idea... The whole concept of deliverance, that idea of rescue, really even of salvation in general, although it's very much muted and veiled in today's preaching of the gospel, it is the front and center of New Testament presentations of the gospel. It's the language that the New Testament writers use when they speak of the gospel. It's the language that's highlighted, particularly in the book of Romans and in our passage this morning, in Romans 3, 21 through 26, which we started to look at last week and we'll continue today, Paul writes, you remember, in verse 21, Now the righteousness of God has been manifest apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. 
This was to show God's righteousness because in His divine forbearance, He had passed over former sins. It was to show His righteousness at the present time so that He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. As we pointed out last week, the theme of this section is not hard to pick up. You can just hear it by Paul's repeated words in verse 21, the righteousness of God. Verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. Verse 25, this is to show God's righteousness. Verse 26, it is to show His righteousness. This is really all about the righteousness of God. It's all about being right with God, and it's all about God being right. And in the course of these few verses, Paul packs in for us uh, just a monumental amount of, of truth, uh, a, a, uh, an absolute compendium of theology that tells us exactly how God has taken us who were wrong and who were alienated and who were enemies of God, and He has made us right. He has made us right with Him, righteous before Him, saved and delivered from our sins. And we started to enumerate some of these truths that Paul highlights here uh, last week, talking in verse 21, and pointing out that this is a righteousness that is now manifested in the cross. As Paul says in verse 21, now the righteousness of God has been manifested. He's saying that up until uh, this time or up until his time, God had demanded righteousness. He had called for righteousness through the law, through the Old Testament, through the Scripture. But how to really achieve that and how to ever have that was never perfectly clear. The, the mandate was there, but the pathway wasn't. The law didn't make it clear. The law didn't provide a way that you could ever really be righteous. In fact, Paul had just said in verse 19, by the works of the law, no human being will be justified for since the, through the law comes the knowledge of sin. That's all the law could do for you. It could just tell you how sinful you were, but it couldn't make you righteous. And so up until the time of Christ, the thrust of what was revealed, well, what was known, was really sin and your need. But through the centuries, there was also a promise, a promise of mercy, a promise of righteousness, which Paul tells us here in verse 21 has now been revealed, it has now been manifest, which brought us really to the second point that he makes here in verse 21, which is that this righteousness not only had now been manifest, but it was a righteousness which is consistent with the Scripture, as he says there at the end of verse 21, it was witnessed by the law and the prophets. This whole message may not have been fully revealed in the Old Testament, but was perfectly consistent with it. Particularly as you read through the prophets, the latter prophets of the Old Testament, as they come time and time again to confront the shortcomings of God's people Israel, they brought these continual promises of a new covenant where God would wipe away Israel's sins, where God would put His Spirit in their hearts and write His law upon their hearts. All of this people were called to respond to in faith, although not knowing the full details of how it's going to work out. God had called them to trust that He would make provision and that provision manifest in Christ. That took us further, you remember, last week to a third point that Paul makes about this righteousness. It's a righteousness, he says, that has been revealed and is a part or or, or, or separate from the law. It's a righteousness apart from the law. This is what he's telling us there in the middle of verse 21, a righteousness manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to us. He's not saying that it's a It's a righteousness that is opposed to the law, but it's a righteousness that doesn't depend on the law. That is to say, it doesn't depend on human effort. There isn't anything that you're going to do. There's nothing you're going to present to God that's going to uh, cause Him to declare that you are right, that you are just, that you are free, that you are not guilty. There's nothing in any law, whether biblical or extra-biblical, there's nothing in any effort 
whether according to God's word or beyond God's word, there's nothing that you will ever do that will merit or obtain this righteousness. It's totally apart from any of that. Nothing you could offer to God that would sway him, persuade him, motivate him, or anything to love you or save you. Which was the essence of the fourth point we made last week. Which is that this is a righteousness then that is received by faith. As he says there in verse 22, this righteousness that is revealed then, it is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. It comes by faith. It comes by faith instead of by works. And this is the contrast Paul's always making not by works, but by faith. The contrast is always between human efforts. It is between following the law. It is between uh, uh, what we might call performance. It is constantly faith as over against all those things. It is by faith and not by works. Which, as we pointed out last week, is just to make clear that even faith itself is not a work. Even that is not something that we do or offer or present which makes us any more worthy to God. Faith, in other words, is simply Paul's way of saying that if we want this righteousness, it is something we have to receive. It is something we have to receive. It is a total abandonment of any reliance on ourselves, on our own resources, And it's a complete reliance on Christ. And through that faith, the Scripture tells us that God credits you with a righteousness you could never receive on your own. So after all of that, after establishing all of that in those first two verses, today we strike out to build on those truths that this righteousness that has now been manifested that is consistent with the scripture that is apart from the law and through faith it's also given as paul tells us at the end of verse 22 without distinction it is without distinction that is to say that because it comes completely and totally by faith and nothing else that anybody can be saved who believes. And everybody who does believe is saved. Bottom line. As Paul says in verse 22, this is the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. Anybody who believes, everybody who believes. It's without, as he says, distinction. This is very similar to the way that he opened up the gospel. You, uh, you remember back in, in uh, chapter 1, verse 17, when he talks about this gospel being the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek, for it, in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith to faith. In other words, it is being revealed from one person's faith to the next person's faith. God is revealing His righteousness from one person to the next without distinction. Jew and Greek and Gentile, barbarian, slave and free. And the reason for all that is given basically in verse 23. He gives the sort of explanatory clause there. The reason it is without distinction is because all have sinned and all fall short of the glory of God. God, in other words, offers this righteousness freely to all people because the reality is all people are equally in need of it. You might gather in a place like this on a Sunday morning and and assume that you are somewhere along a spectrum of need, that you might be more needy than these beautiful families that are around you, or you might be less needy than the scum that's sitting beside you, or however you evaluate the people who are around you, you might place yourself somewhere on a continuum, but the Scripture doesn't. The Scripture places you in exactly the same spot with every 
other person. You have fallen short of the glory of God. That is to say that you've fallen short of God's character. You've fallen short of God's perfection. And it's His perfection that He demands for each person who wants to enter into heaven. As He says in Matthew 5.48, Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. That is the mandate if you want to enter into heaven. He demands that we perfectly embody His moral character, His sinlessness. And if you fail to do that, then you have, like everyone else, fallen short of the glory of God. And of course, since no one can even come close to that, we all stand in the same place. And we must all receive, if we have any righteousness of God, we must all receive it from God in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. He offers it without distinction to all who believe because all who receive it are sinners. People have a hard time understanding that because they have a tendency to think of goodness, to think of virtue or whatever it might be. They have a tendency to think of worthiness as a, as a relative state that is relative to other things around you. But goodness isn't relative at all, or better say it this way, perfection isn't relative. When, when Paul had taught There is none good, no, not one. What he's saying here isn't that we don't uh, all... He's not saying that we don't all have our unique qualities or, or virtues as we might measure ourselves with one another. But what he's saying is when measured against God, there are no virtues that you have which will commend you to God. There are no virtues that you can call up which will set you apart in distinction from any other person. Your perfection, your goodness are not relative in that sense. You're no more worthy, you're no more ready, no more prepared, nor is anyone else when it comes to approaching God. We might say that evil is relative. We might talk about some people being technically worse than others. There are various factors in our life that might aggravate the sinful tendencies in our heart or might provoke those things or intensify those things. There are people who may be brought up in certain sinful environments. And the Scripture teaches us that whenever we, whenever we aren't faithful to the Lord, there are consequences that come from generation to generation as we pass down patterns of behavior and types of activity and we pass on habits to our own children and grandchildren. And there are things that happen to us in our background that may intensify our rebellion or our waywardness. But don't confuse that relative evil that may, might be in our hearts, that might be in our lives with some sort of relative standard of goodness, as if God is somehow measuring all of that on some scale and giving some people credit and other people not. You equally stand in the same place with everyone else. And that's why if you receive the righteousness of God, you must receive it equally the same way. No distinction. I mean, this has been the theme that Paul has had from the beginning of Romans. This is what he's been driving through the first three chapters, particularly aimed at the self-righteous or the religious or the pious or whatever it might be, trying to communicate to them particularly that all of their works and all of their effort and all of their religiosity and all their commitment and all their sacrifices or whatever it might be, commend them no more than the next man. They stand in exactly the same place. So that the worst criminal and even the most loving missionary, they may have their relative differences in how much sin is manifest in their lives, but they are equally short of the standard that God demands. John Stott says, The prostitute, the liar, the murderer fall short of God's glory, but so do you. 
Perhaps they stand at the bottom of a mine and you're on the crest of the Alps, but you're as unequal to reach the stars as they are. That's where you are. You might be boasting as you look around, thinking that you are marginally better or maybe miles better than the next person, but you are light years from where God calls you. You might be standing at the bottom of that mine. You might be covered in the muck and mire of all your, all your disgraceful choices. You might be burying around the guilt and the shame of a lifestyle that you've lived up to this point. You might be assuming that there's no way then that you can ascend to the heights and get close to God. And what the Scripture's telling you is that you stand in exactly the same place that everyone else stands. You, along with all the virtuous people, along with all the recognized people, along with all the praised people, you, like them, are a sinner and have fallen short of God's glory, and you, like them, can approach God and receive in total everything He has to offer by faith. You say, well, that can't be true. I've gone too far. It can't be true. I have, I've done too much. People have cast me aside. Society has cast me aside. If you knew, if you understood what had gone on in my life, you would never say such things. It really doesn't matter what I say. It matters what God says. And what He's telling you here is that there's no one, no one who is beyond redemption. No one who is beyond His righteousness. Jesus said it in John six thirty seven. The one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. This is his call. This is his invitation. This is what Paul's getting at in this passage. Everyone, everyone stands equally in the same place. And everyone who receives anything from God receives it exactly the same way. They have to. Because they have nothing else to distinguish them. They have nothing else by which to commend them to God. And so when you receive the righteousness of God, you receive it just like everyone else. You receive it by faith. There's no distinction. So that God through Christ offers the same standing, the same position, the same righteousness on the same basis. And with the same praise to His name. All that sort of leads us to the next glorious truth here. When Paul's talking about this righteousness to us. It's, as he says, manifested in the cross. It's consistent with Scripture. It's apart from the law. Through faith and without distinction. But then in verse 24, he he progresses further when he tells us, It is granted freely through grace. That this righteousness comes by faith and is granted freely through grace. Or as he says there, we are justified by His grace as a gift. Or literally being justified by His grace. And people have struggled with this. They've looked at it grammatically, if you will, and, and pointed out that it doesn't necessarily make sense. It doesn't necessarily have what we would call a, a clear antecedent, maybe, uh, when he talks about being justified or are justified, it begs the question, who exactly in this context is he talking about? Well, it's, it's basically all those who have sinned in verse 23. All those who are, have sinned. And, and Paul uses something of, uh, of a sort of abrupt grammar here in order to drive home the point that it is the very ones who have sinned. It is the very ones who have fallen so far short of God's glory. They are the ones who are declared before God to be just. They're the ones who are declared before God to be right or to be righteous. It is, in other words, back in verse 22, all those who believe. All who ultimately receive the righteousness for God, all who have equally sinned, all who stand equally as far from God, all of them, therefore, receive what they receive from God as a gift of grace. That's basically what the word grace means. It basically means a gift. 
It means something that you receive freely, something that is, is uh, given to you without any sort of merit or payment or anything like that. And Paul stacks up two terms here to drive home that concept. The, the word dorian, which is basically in Greek, it means a gift. And the word by grace, a gift by grace or freely given, as some translations give it. And what this means basically is that all people receive from God on the, the day of judgment, if they are in Christ, if they have placed their faith in Christ, no matter how sinful they are, no matter how wayward they've been, no matter how filthy their lives might have been, every one of them who placed their faith in Christ receive from God a favorable verdict. That's essentially what justified means. It's a legal term. Speaking about a verdict against you. And he's, he's using these terms of the law and the courts, saying that you, when you're judged by the law of God, or when you are brought to bear, or the law, law is brought to bear against you as a sinner, no matter how bad of a lawbreaker you are, because of this gift, God grants you a favorable verdict. And it isn't something you purchase, it isn't something you earn, it isn't something you deserve. It isn't anything you can receive by offering something in exchange for it. You don't go through a certain amount of suffering. You don't make a certain amount of sacrifice. You don't log a certain number of hours. You don't do penance. You don't offer prayers. You don't read Scripture. You don't sing songs. You don't do any of that in exchange for what God gives you. He gives it as a gift. He simply grants it. And so the picture is that you enter into the courtroom of God, guilty, fallen short in every way, but you are granted a, a favorable verdict from God. You are declared to be right. You are declared to be righteous. Now, this is the first time Paul actually uses this word in Romans, but it will become very important particularly over the next two chapters. It's a vital word, vital word not only for Romans, but a vital word for understanding the gospel. A vital word for understanding your whole relationship with God. Because in that moment, and it isn't really the, the final moment when you stand before Him, it is the moment you place your faith in Christ, you are declared just, you are declared right. And in that moment, you go from being a guilty a lawbreaker, a guilty criminal, if you will, you go from being antagonistic against God and at enmity with God, you go from being an enemy of God to being at peace with God. As a matter of fact, if you have your Bibles, look over at Romans 5 and verse 1. This glorious truth, as Paul summarizes it in verse 1 of that chapter, therefore... Since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. It is that summary act, it is that summary declaration which brings about peace. It is that declaration by God of you being right, of you being just, of you being holy. It is that declaration which obtains and maintains peace with God. Because God has made this declaration for all who are in Christ, they have peace with God. You say, well, you don't understand. I mean, lately, lately, I've done some things and they have angered God. I've done some things and He's cast me off. I've done some things and He's shut up heaven against me. He's not hearing my prayers. He's not loving me anymore. He's not doing any of those things. You don't understand. There's some things that have broken that peace. No. It's impossible. If you have been declared right, if you've been declared just by God, it isn't based on what you do. And so what you do can't undo it. God loves you as much today 
God has just as much commitment to you today. God is looking out, caring for you, undergirding you as much today as the first day you ever prayed a sincere prayer and put your faith in Him. Because the work that's accomplished through Christ by faith that you place in Him has no uh, uh, basis on what you do by way of performance. And so you are at peace with God. Now, it doesn't mean that your life is what it needs to be. It doesn't mean that you're living according to His will in every area. And it doesn't mean that God as a loving Father doesn't chastise us and lovingly scourge us from time to time. As a matter of fact, the Scripture tells us that He did that even with His own Son. Even His own Son suffered, Hebrews 5 tells us, in order to learn obedience. So it's not surprising if in God's love and care and affection for us, when we begin to go wayward, that we might begin to experience some of the difficulties that God would bring in our life, but we should never interpret those in such a blasphemous way as to assume that Christ's sacrifice is now somehow deficient in obtaining for us and maintaining for us the love of God. That is an unworshipful, that is a disrespectful attitude and thought. It's a disbelieving thought. When we are declared by God to be just, that declaration is final and eternal. And His love and His care and His concern are forever grounded in that. You see, you need to understand, when we say this, we talk about justification, we talk about redemption, we talk about a bunch of different words when it comes to salvation. And sometimes we even talk about forgiveness, and we bunch all those words up, and we don't always think about the beauty of the distinction when you look at them in fine detail. But they're not all exactly the same. You can't even think about justification in the same way that you think about forgiveness. The concepts, although often linked in Scripture, are different. Because one has a negative connotation, the other a positive connotation. And it's very important. Forgiveness involves maybe what we might call acquittal. It involves a dismissal of charges. We might even say it involves amnesty from your sin. But as you know from personal experience, someone may very well offer forgiveness. Someone may very well say they forgive you, but really have nothing to do with you. Not even want you around very much. You can be, in other words, you can be forgiven and still unwanted. You can be forgiven and still disrespected. You can be forgiven and still sometimes dismissed. But justification is different than that. Justification isn't the negative removal of the consequences or guilt of your sin. It is the positive declaration, not only that you've not sinned, but the declaration that you are right, that you are just, that you are holy. In fact, it is the positive uh, imputing or assigning of righteousness to you. God, in other words, when we talk about God justifying someone, we're not talking about justify the way that we sometimes use the word justify. We might speak about a, one of our children, you know, doing something and and we catch them and they try to justify what they do, what we really mean is that they're trying to make excuses. They're trying to come up with some story that would explain why they did what they did and maybe get them out of some of the guilt or, or shame. This isn't what, what we're talking about when we talk about God justifying us. What we're talking about is God declaring us to be just and declaring us to be right. And when He does that, The Scripture tells us that by that justification, as 
we'll see in Romans chapter 4, he credits righteousness, not just any righteousness, but he credits his own righteousness to our account. It is a transfer, an actual transfer of righteousness so that you are now the true owner of all that righteousness. Just like you may have a boss who direct deposits a paycheck into your account, you don't pretend that money is there. It's yours. There's an actual transfer, and now you possess it. In the same way, God doesn't pretend like you're righteous. He has given you righteousness. He's given it to you. He actually credits it to your account. So it's a profound truth that He's giving to us here. Not that God is endorsing any of our sin and not that God is is making light of any of that, but by the power of Christ and His sacrifice, He grants us all sufficiency to be declared and credited with righteousness, which is not our own, or I should say doesn't come from us, but once it is given to us, it is our own. It is truly ours for all eternity, credited to our account. This whole transaction, the wiping away of your sins, the crediting of righteousness to your account, the actual transferring of all that, Paul says it happens freely. It's absolutely grace. It's absolutely the gift of God. Nothing that you can do, nothing you'll ever offer. You can spend the rest of your days in the most devoted prayer, in the most humble demeanor. You can spend the rest of your days worshiping and serving and going and doing all these things and you'll be no more worthy of it at the end of your life than you are today. It's given as a gift for all who believe. Credited to your account. Notice I... I said it was given freely. I didn't say it is free. In fact, it's very costly, which is Paul's next point. It's what he says in the second half of verse 24, because this righteousness, it's been purchased through redemption. It doesn't cost you a thing. There's nothing you could ever give that could even come close to being worthy of it. But there was someone who gave in order to purchase it for you. And that's what Paul's talking about there in verse 24 when he talks about this coming to us by redemption. Or, uh, or as he says there in verse 24, we're justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. What does that mean? I mean, we don't use that term very often. We might talk about redeeming some discount code or redeeming some coupon, but we really don't think about the word redemption very often. But in the context of the New Testament, and certainly even in the context of the Old Testament, it would, be, it would have been a very familiar term, particularly because this was a world of slavery. And the word itself has primary reference to that world. It has a primary reference to the idea of providing for or paying a price for the release of someone in slavery, the release of someone in captivity. The word itself, particularly this one, apalutrosis, was a word that had to do with paying the price for the release of a slave. And so when Paul uses this word, the people reading the letter would have understood exactly what he's talking about. In our day, we may not, it may not jump off the page to us, but we would understand it if we translated it with the word ransom. A ransom is something that is paid in order to release someone from captivity. A ransom is something that is paid in order to release someone 
who's been bound and captured. And this is really what we're talking about here. Christ paid a price to ransom us. He paid a price to purchase us out of bondage to freedom. And so you really can't read this without understanding that you were a prisoner. You are a prisoner if you are outside of Christ. You were born into this world, but you were born a slave. You were born a captive with no resources to do anything about your situation, with no means to free yourself at all. You are a captive. You are in need of rescue. You are in need of someone to deliver you, to bring you out of your bondage, to pay a ransom for your release. The Bible speaks of mankind this way. It speaks of mankind as bound or enslaved. In many ways, we're enslaved, Galatians 3.23 says, under the law. Before faith came, Galatians says, we were held captive under the law. In other words, we were bound to the law. We were bound to a code of performance. We lived under the weight of those shackles. And so we were enslaved to the law. And because of that, Galatians says also, we were imprisoned under sin. That is to say, we were imprisoned under the curse of failure. That was another bondage that we were under. We were bound to a wrecking ball of guilt and ready to be cast into the sea by God's judgment. I mean, we're bound to the shame and the sin with nothing to free them, no way to escape. The Bible also says mankind is not just enslaved to the guilt of his sin. He's enslaved to the sin itself. In fact, if you have your Bibles, look over at Romans chapter 6. Because Paul later on will expand on this in some detail. He says, beginning in verse um, 12, Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to obey its passions. And do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who've been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you since you're not under the law but under grace. Skip down to verse 17. This is what Paul says. But thanks be to God that though you once were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that standard of teaching to which you were committing, having been set free from sin, you've become slaves of righteousness. So this is what the Bible teaches, that you and me and every person born into this world, we were slaves. We may not have felt like it. We may not have thought of ourselves that way. We may have thought of ourselves as free. We may have thought of ourselves as going through life, making choices and doing the things that we wanted to do. But the problem is that your choices and your wants are corrupted and you're bound to them. You're enslaved, in other words, to a sinful nature so that your sinful nature drives you continually to make choices in rebellion against God and in detriment to yourself so that we could add to that that you were enslaved not only to sin but you were enslaved to its futility as well this is what peter gets at in peter 118 first peter 118 when he speaks about us being redeemed from futility We're redeemed from futility, which we inherited from our forefathers, a way of living which itself was futile, apart from God, and therefore worthless. Living a life, no matter how memorable you might think it is, no matter how virtuous you might think it would be, no matter how recognized by the world, no matter how impactful no matter how grand, no matter, how, you know, whatever it is, how, how virtuous you are investing in whatever, the Bible declares that if it is a life apart from God, it is futile. Because the only real reason to live, the only real reason to live is for the glory of God. Because what does it profit a man? If he gains the whole world, but forfeits his soul. There's nothing of profit 
if your life is not lived for God. And so he redeems us out of that pointless and aimless and futile way of life that we were a part of. He redeems us from that. And redeemed by a very precious price, as Peter goes on to say, knowing you were ransomed or redeemed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like the Lamb without blemish or spot. We're told in the history of the Crusades, there was in England one King Richard, Richard Coeur de Lyon. We know him as Richard the Lionhearted, Richard I. He was captured by his enemies during the Crusades and thrown into prison on his way back from the Holy Land where his enemies demanded an enormous ransom for his release. In fact, it was a ransom three times the annual budget of the government of England. Surprisingly, the people of England loved him so much that they willingly submitted to extreme taxation and over the course of 18 months paid four times their normal burden of tax with nobles adding to the coffers so that they could come up with this immense sum of money to free their king. It gave birth to the phrase that we use sometimes, a king's ransom, meaning a huge sum of money. I don't know if it's topped or equaled by the story of Sir Grimwald, who was also captured during the Crusades and held for ransom, and captors didn't ask for money. Instead, they said in order to emancipate him, it would require the right hand of his lovely wife which historians told us she eagerly gave up to get her beloved husband back. Listen, those prices, they can't compare with what was given for you. They they can't compare. No amount of money, Peter says, no gold or riches, no health or wealth, no part of your body or part of your life, nothing There's nothing that can compare to the price that was given to you. There's nothing that you could ever put on the table that would equal in terms of offering or or value what was given in order to redeem you. It is an infinitely high price. It's redemption for your freedom, this price for your deliverance. Which is so interesting to me because in the popular theology of deliverance, all the focus is on you. It's always about delivering you, delivering you from from some demon, delivering you from some disease, delivering you from some debt, delivering you from some sort of difficulty or hardship. It's all about uh, uh, some benefit to you, and the focus is always so manward. But when you look into the Scripture, when you read about uh, redemption and deliverance, what you read about is always Godward-focused. The, the, the emphasis is always not on even what we receive so much as what He gave. You were bought with a price, the Scripture tells us, therefore glorify God in your body. Peter says, be holy and live your life in the fear of God, knowing that you were not redeemed with perishable things, but with the precious blood of God. In other words, this mandates something from you. This idea of redemption demands something from you. You were delivered from the domain of darkness, Colossians says, and transferred into or under the kingdom of His beloved Son by whom we have redemption. And the whole thing speaks about dominion. It speaks about sovereignty. It speaks about rule and reign. We're under His kingdom. We're under His rule. This is redemption in the Scripture. And we can also say of popular theology that the whole focus is somehow being delivered from the devil or maybe his schemes. But let's be clear that when Christ redeemed us, He primarily redeemed us from a curse which God imposed. It was God 
who pronounced the curse on sin. It is God who inflicts the punishment. And so this redemption was paid. But it wasn't paid to the devil. It was paid to God. It was a purchase for your freedom that God demanded. And He paid it sufficiently. Everything that would ever be asked of you. Well, there's more that we can say and there's more we will say in the coming weeks in Romans chapter 3. But if you're here today and you're here and you're imagining that there is some need in your life, some need for deliverance, some release from the problems of stresses and strains of your home and your marriage and your job and your, your, your straits, whatever they might be. If you're here today and you're hearing this message from the Lord, from His Word, this is the message you need to comprehend. And it is this, that you do need deliverance. But what you need deliverance from, what you need to be redeemed from, is the curse of your own sin, is the judgment of God. But the good news is the very one who threatens judgment is the very one who offered the price of redemption. He came as an expression of His love, gave freely His Son, so that you can have freely the gift of righteousness and the gift of eternal life. Let's stand together and we'll be dismissed with a word of prayer. Lord, we could not thank You enough. We could not be humbled more but to comprehend the grace that we've received even this morning. Not only to receive these gifts, but to hear them again. To understand that from the moment we placed faith in Christ, from that first prayer, from your declaration that we stand in Christ, that we stand in you today complete and sufficient. And we will for always and all eternity be tethered to you by the love of the Son so that nothing will separate us from you or from the love of Christ. Lord, these are truths that we need to ponder. These are truths that we need to sing. Make them our meditation all the day. Make them our song in the morning. Make them our delight in the evening. Make them our message on the, on the lips and on our tongues wherever we go this week. That our great Redeemer has come. That He's purchased us for Himself. That He's given us righteousness, eternal life, and glory. And all praise and glory be to His name for it. Amen.